I'm Jason Lewis. I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help be part of delivering the content you hear, consider joining our community of monthly supporters. You can feel good knowing you're helping empower people around the globe make a difference on climate. And all you have to do is head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button. And while you're on the website, don't forget to take a moment to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It offers facts on climate solutions, perspective on climate news, and tips on how to make a difference. And if you are short of cash but still want to help us out, there is a possibility to help us reach a bigger audience by having your friends subscribe and rating us on your favorite streaming platform. Great point, Thomas. So if someone asked you to name the most used material on earth, what would your answer be? Perhaps not surprisingly, water holds the number one spot, but what about number two? Up until recently, I probably would have guessed something like you know fossil fuels or food-related product, but the answer is actually concrete. And in 2020, the world produced nearly 14 billion, that's billion, cubic meters of concrete. And if you're wondering, well, what is that really? For context, we did some calculations here. And at that rate, you could make a concrete replica of Mount Everest in about six and a half years, which is just crazy to me. So given how much we make of this stuff and the emissions that it's responsible for, today we're going to be talking about kind of the nexus of concrete and climate. But before we get into the the details, let's talk about this week's Reason for Hope. Yeah, Jason, the um, European Union just announced its Green Industrial Plan, which is intended to counter the US's Inflation Reduction Act and subsequently reduce the EU's dependence upon China. Uh, There's nothing quite like a bit of uh, friendly competition to accelerate the green economy. And um, according to routers, the EU wants to ensure its manufacturing capacity is present to meet at least 40% of its needs for equipment required to decarbonize the EU, such as solar panels, wind turbines, heat pumps, and batteries by 2030. In addition, uh, the plan also intends to streamline the permitting process for green projects and and lays out a goal of reaching uh, 50 million tonnes of annual CO2 storage by 2030. Yeah, I thought that was an exciting bit of good news. You know, I mean, obviously, the EU's been moving in this direction and really arguably is leading the way in terms of decarbonizing. You know, they're ahead of, ahead of the US. But yeah, I think this build out of, you know, capacity to build things like solar panels, wind turbines, and heat pumps only really accelerates our, our transition to, you know, a carbon-free economy. So yeah, I thought it was good news. And I'm, I'm sure the whole uh, coronavirus pandemic and um, the blocking of the Suez Canal and a few other things has um, spurred the EU to move in this direction. Yeah, indeed. So our guest today to help educate us on the solutions to decarbonizing concrete is Chris Bataille. Chris has been involved in energy and climate policy for 27 years. In that time, he's worn many hats, including researcher, energy systems and economic modeler, project manager, analyst, writer, and managing consultant and partner. He's currently an adjunct research fellow at Columbia University's Center for Global Energy Policy and an associate researcher at the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations in Paris. 
He was also the lead author of the industry chapter in the latest assessment report released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which for folks who don't know is basically the the Bible of all climate reports. Chris holds a doctorate in resource and environmental management from Simon Fraser University. And we had him on the show this past fall to talk about the buzz around hydrogen and excited to have him uh, come back and talk to us about concrete. Chris, welcome back to uh, Climate Optimus. Hey, nice to see you again, Jason. Well, let's start you off with a, a basic question. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Uh, to be honest, it's that we're finally paying attention to it. Um, it's not a technology thing. We, we know how to basically eliminate CO2 emissions from our, from our economy. But it, it basically, it's a generational effort to kind of go sector by sector, process by process, and replace each one with a non-emitting version. Um, some of it's easy, some of it's hard, but it's really, it's a matter of focus and policy focus and investment focus and what have you. So that, that's what does make me, you know, the fact that we are paying attention makes me optimistic. Yeah, it's, it definitely feels like there's a there's a transformation when you compare it to even, you know, a few years ago, the number of people, you know, tuned in and, and really wanting to, you know, see forward progress. Well, since we're talking uh, concrete and, and cement today, let's, for those who may not be super familiar with, with the two, let's talk about kind of what they are and, and you know, how they're different. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So cement and concrete is one of my favorite topics besides iron and steel. Um, I've been doing material decarbonization basically full time now for about seven years. Before that, I was doing economy wide decarbonization. But because materials, you know, electricity and hydrogen, everything is so central to keep a tab on that. But cement concrete is the is the thing we use the most in the economy by pure volume and mass. Um, our buildings are made out of it. Our infrastructure is made out of it. A lot of our roads are made out of it. Um, you'd be hard put not to turn around you and see not see concrete at any given time. Uh, Infrastructure is about 48% of the concrete use, um, buildings and okay. uh, 45%. So it's kind of roughly half-half. Um, and the difference between cement and concrete is simply cement is what holds concrete together. Um, concrete is a mixture of what we call aggregates. So you've got big stones, little stones, and sand that are glued together with cement. And in well-made concrete, you, you use multi-size aggregates or multi-size stone and sand and to minimize the amount of cement holding holding it together so there's no air pockets or what have you, because it's the stones and sand that give the strength, and it's the cement that hold the stones and sand together that hold everything up. Um, Inside that, you'll often have reinforcement bar steel, but most of it is in that cement to aggregate relationship. That's a very clear way to explain it. I don't know if I've heard it explained that clearly before. So, you know, when it comes to, to concrete... It's, it, it does sound like it's pretty critical if cement is your bonding unit then to have that diversity of size. So then yes. you basically don't need as much glue to kind of hold everything together. And that is the first thing you do when you're trying to decarbonize the cement and concrete sector is you go to more sizes of aggregates and better mixing. That makes sense. Well, I think you already answered my next question, which was kind of where do we use you know some concrete in our in our economy? And it sounds like it's kind of half and half between infrastructure and, and building. Um, let's jump from there into kind of like what are the most kind of promising solutions at the moment for addressing uh, concrete's emissions? 
No, a great question. So most of the emissions um, from cement and concrete come from making cement and very specifically from making something called clinker. It's the precursor material for making cement. And basically what we do today is we take limestone in a kiln and we heat the ground limestone to 850 degrees Celsius. And then it separates into calcium oxide or lime and CO2. And then the CO2, we just release that to atmosphere typically. And then we take that calcium oxide, we mix it with iron and aluminum silicates, and that's baked together at 1450 degrees Celsius. And that forms clinker. Now, it's, the, it's 60% of the emissions from cement and concrete making are from that CO2 that goes off into the end. This is in a best available technology, a very efficient plant, which is what most of the plants are in the developed world today. 60% of the emissions are that CO2 that goes off from the limestone. 40% is from the heat to do all this. In a less efficient plant, that heat component will be larger. Okay. So basically, what's going out sort of the, the stacks, if you will, from these kilns that CO2 is the bulk of it, but then there's the other major component is, is heating, right? Generating yes. heat to get these things up to temperature. Yep. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess for, for you know, just general awareness for folks, how much of the globe's, you know, emissions, greenhouse gas emissions are currently kind of tied to concrete production? It's roughly 8%. So it's roughly, you know, the emissions of almost the European Union. I think the European Union is about 9% now. So, wow, that's, that's massive. It's big. Well, let's let's pivot then into sort of solutions. What's out there today that's kind of promising? Um, you know, kind of where are we in terms of stages of development? Okay, so this is where already today we we do what's called clinker substitution in North America. Most of our cement is almost pure clinker. Um, in Europe, though, they have five different classes of cement that allow different mixtures of other stuff in with the clinker, depending on what you're doing. If you've got a lot of blast furnace slag to work with, you can do up to 95% substitution. Fly ash, maybe 30, 40%. So there are these different mixtures, depending on how, what you're using it for, what the you know what you're trying to hold up with the concrete, there's different mixtures and it would, it'll still work and it has lower emissions. Now, what's really interesting is there's a Swiss organization, LC3 Cements or Limestone Calcine Clay Cements. And what they, what they want to do with up to half the clinker is you replace that that with one third ground limestone, two thirds calcine clays. And that one third to two thirds can replace up to half the clinker in normal cement without affecting its performance. So right off the top, and th this stuff meets U.S. performance standards already, right? It's a matter of getting architects, civil engineers, structural engineers, and construction companies used to working with it and getting it, getting it in, into projects. So we could literally cut half the emissions from cement as soon as we can get this stuff into the market. So that's the first big one. The second, second and well, it's second through 10th is there's a whole bunch of alternative chemistries coming up. First of all, you've got a couple of U.S. companies that are trying to figure out how to get the constituents of cement without heating limestone. Like all those emissions come from all those big emissions I talked about earlier come from heating limestone and releasing CO2. Farther down the road, there are other even alternative chemistries for making cement, but we tend not to focus on those because that they change how we do construction. And we don't really want to, like there's too many options that don't require us to change construction that we want to get those into the marketplace first. Gotcha. So some questions about chemistry and some folks may not be, you know, super comfortable with chemistry, but it sounds like there's an option to today kind of sw switch out about half of the 
the cement that we need or half of the materials we need to produce cement with alternatives that don't produce those CO2 emissions. And then it sounds like the uh, the limestone that's in, you know, as a, as a product of this process, minimizing that is really where you, you know, have big gains in terms of eliminating carbon emissions. It's, it's the limestone heating. The other thing that's available to us is to apply carbon capture and storage, where at the end of the kiln, you, you grab all the emissions, you separate out the CO2, and you put it underground. So cementitious material substitutes, alternative chemistries, and CCS. Between the three of those, we have all the options we need. Now, the thing is, though, to add CCS to a cement plant is going to add probably somewhere around 400 to $700 million to it and probably double the cost of the cement. Wow. Okay. So from a cost perspective, it sounds like the option number one, which is reducing your, you know, sort of need for cement in the process is kind of, is, is the ideal solution because it's, you know, you maintain the, the strengths that you need to, and it sounds like it doesn't have a big impact on cost. So just making sure I understand kind of the different possibilities. If we were to talk about this in terms of like glue, it sounds like, you know, we have materials we can substitute in our glues so we don't need as much of it if the cement's the glue it mm -hmm. sounds like there's different um, types of glue that we could make that would still serve the same purpose and then you know then there's these emissions that come out at the end of the process of making this glue which is cement and then you know capturing those emissions and, and putting them back into the ground yeah, it, the interesting thing is th that capture equipment is very expensive for the producer right? So for the person who owns a cement plant, but it adds very little to the cost of a road, a bridge, a bridge, or a bridge or a building, right? So if we can connect that, connect that small, very small increase in cost at the end use with the very high increase to the producer, like, and make a contract between the two of them, we can make this happen. The problem is right now is the cement producers sell into a homogenous market and their, their product would cost twice what dirty cement costs and therefore they won't sell any, right? So if they can connect through to people who are willing to buy the very low emissions cement, who are willing to pay that little premium, it will make all the difference. And that it's the same with steel, right? Can you, can you get your green steel through to a car maker who's willing to add a couple hundred dollars to the car because they know the consumer will pay for it. So then is that really about kind of the, the, the purchasing side then like having, let's say a, a government's commit to buying this greener material and then having, you know, that you say that cost be able to pass back through to the producer. So they're able to cover. Yep. And, the, and already in the U.S., there's a federal level executive order uh, heading to, and it's it's further to be defined. California and a couple other states are working towards that. Several European jurisdictions are, are working towards that. But it takes time to get these things through. And you almost need the signal that the willingness to buy and the willingness to pay to be there before the cement makers will take the big risk of investing several hundred million dollars more in a plant. Or like A, switching to the, the different glue, which doesn't cost them anything, but it has market risk attached to it, right? Or switching to, or, or installing capture equipment, which adds 500 million dollars to their plant, which has a very big financial risk to it. They'll do it, but they have to know they're going to get the necessary price for it. So if we're looking at kind of the chicken and the egg formula, we need we need the government really to commit to um, or make long-term commitments in terms of being able to purchase this material so that they can, these folks can feel comfortable, you know, getting out the checkbook for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. So it feels like there's a little bit of buzz about like storing carbon in concrete. So I want to give you a chance to kind of riff on that because I think <laughs> okay. I've, seen, I've seen some people talk about it like, oh my gosh, this is going to save the world. Yeah, the, there are several companies that do this. Include the, the preeminent company at this point is a Canadian company called out of Halifax called Carbon Cure. And what they do when the cement is curing is they, or when they pour the cement is they inject some CO2. Now, what that does is it hardens the, the cement faster and it makes better quality cement, harder cement. It, the amount of CO2 going in is absolutely tiny, but it's what it does to the chemistry and the reaction that allows the, allows the builder to use less cement where they might have before. So really the CO2 is this uh, strength enhancer, and that's really where you get the savings in using less material. And this brings up another thing. A lot of cement structures over their lifetime, the unreacted lime and other, and other materials in there will pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and react it. If you've ever looked at an old bridge or a crack on a concrete structure, and you'll see that solidified, it's like white stuff or lime on there, that's carbonation happening right in front of you. It's where CO2 is literally being pulled out of the air and re-solidified. So some people say up to 80% of the CO2 that was emitted when making the cement will be reabsorbed by the structure. Some say only 20, but I think it's dependent on how porous is the structure, how exposed it is to the air. Like if, if, if lots of air can get at it. So as, as we're talking about these, these different solutions, I can't help but wonder, you know, being somebody who, you know, thinks about the reduce and reuse before the recycle, are there, yeah. um, are there other kind of areas in sort of the life cycle of concrete that we be, should be thinking about in terms of reducing emissions, right? If, are there ways to reuse old concrete or recycle it so that we're not having to create as much of the, the cement in the first place that you know, generates these emissions? No, absolutely. Before you even talk about production, at the front end, we should be designing buildings and infrastructure, what have you, to minimize concrete use. We use about three times too much typically. Um, oh, wow. Simply because it's cheap, it's very resilient, but we tend to use too much of it for that reason. And just having an architect consider minimizing the use of concrete and even using CAD CAM tools where you say you print a structure or you precast it just so that the concrete's there for the down forces, but you don't have all this extra filler concrete there that's not necessary for the strength of the structure. So right up front, very conservative estimates are that we can cut concrete use by about 25% just in design right up front. Wow. On the back end, when we're done with a concrete structure, there's often quite a bit of unreacted cement in there. So if you grind up that concrete, you can recover the unreacted cement and you can recover those aggregates, the sand, the small stones and the big stones and reuse them. And that actually has a side benefit that you don't have to go quarry more aggregates, you know, dig up a stream bed, dig a, a pull out a hillside. It's getting harder and harder for concrete companies to get aggregates. So if you can recover those aggregates and reuse them, it means you don't have to dig another hole, basically. Okay, so both on the kind of on the front end, using less of it, being more efficient with it in terms of design, and then on and then on the back end, it sounds like there is an opportunity to really recycle or reuse some of these materials. Yes. What's necessary to get that kind of jump started, right? I mean, is it something that's done at a small scale, kind of been proven out, but just isn't needs to be scaled up, or? Okay, so a building codes. 
where building code should encourage this and not discourage this. So that right up front, you need to put the discretion in the hands of the architect, civil and structural engineer. They need to prioritize minimizing the use of concrete, but you have to allow them to do that. On the back end, cement and concrete companies have often been not allowed to reuse aggregates. They've been forced to go mine new, more, new aggregates. And part of this is because it's gotten more and more expensive for them to do that. They've been asking to be able to recycle old aggregates. So it's kind of like with clothes, right? You'll see a little tag saying 100% brand new fibers. Do you necessarily want them to be 100% brand new? Does that make the make material better for you? Sometimes it's, you know, if you can recycle older fibers, they're just fine. It's that's exactly the case with aggregates. So so on that back end piece of it then, it's making sure there aren't barriers then if I'm a, yeah. you know, concrete manufacturer that I can go and partner with the you know, the municipality where I have my plant and be able to take down that old structures, use some of that to build the the net new structure. Yes. So Chris, as we're talking about this, it, it technology's there. It sounds like the solutions to help, you know, implement the technology are there. And so I guess I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, what are the things that, you know, and maybe we've talked about them already a little bit, but what are the things we need to do to really accelerate this, you know, decarbonization of, of concrete? No, absolutely. Well, okay. A, revise the building codes. B, get green procurement going. C, for the when it comes to the expensive stuff like putting CCS on cement plants, you're going to need you're going to need some specialist policies. Like, you know, we're struggling to get strong carbon pricing in North America, and that's just a political reality. Probably in my lifetime, it'll never be strong enough to pay for decarbonized cement plants. But what you can do is put on what are called carbon contracts for difference or production contracts for difference, where for every ton of clean clinker or clean cement they put out, they get a guaranteed adder for so many years. This is how they got wind and solar going in Europe and specifically offshore wind around the UK. So the UK would say, you know, we've got a thousand gigawatts or a thousand megawatts of space here for wind turbines. They would put it to the open market saying, what's the minimum price that you need to generate? And companies would bid in and the lowest cost companies, they would get that minimum price. If the market price was over that, the government would collect the extra. But if the market price is under, they make sure the companies get that extra the extra they need. The same thing could be done for cement. Um, another thing we're working on is, so California has this zero emissions vehicle standard that was used to bring zero emissions vehicles onto the market. Car manufacturers that wanted to sell in California first had to do half a percent, then one, then two, then three, then five percent. The same thing could be done with cement plants. If you want to sell cement in California, you have to have a ZEC credit, a zero emission cement credit on hand that says this amount of zero emission cement w- was produced somewhere in the jurisdiction. So just unpacking that a little more. So, you know, I know we talk a lot about a, the value of a carbon price, but it sounds like, you know, while a carbon price might be good for things like driving electrical, you know, electric vehicle, you know, uptake, cement, you're talking a lot higher price on carbon. So probably not the tool that we that we need at this point. And instead, it's really creating these markets where government is ensuring that these, you know, manufacturers um, get the price they need to be competitive or you're basically mandating and saying, hey, you know, a certain amount of what you bring into this state or this country um, has to be zero emission concrete. And then you just kind of slowly ratchet that percentage. Right. 
Exactly. So while you know many of us aren't going to be consuming a lot of, of concrete ourselves, um, wondering you know if we can help push uh, concrete in the right direction here. It sounds like you know if we can advocate for cleaning up building codes and and then maybe pushing our you know local or state or what have you government to purchase uh, green cement. No, absolutely. And to my mind, this is something we should be able to get by, you know, every country's got its own political structure going, but we should be able to get bipartisan consensus around, right? It's just buy clean, buy domestic, right? Because that way you can control the environment, you can control the technologies. The costs are very small. They're a lot for the producer, very small for the users. If we can bridge that gap and, you know, and this is putting domestic domestic workers and investment to use cleaning up the local environment. It has a lot of local air, air quality improvements as well that come with it. The trick is citizens have to contact their representatives, pick up the phone or write a letter, what have you. That's why they're there. <laughs> they are your democratically elected representatives. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll all uh, try to do our part then to, to uh, pick up the phone, send those emails and call for, for a greener, uh, greener concrete. There you go. Well, Chris, thanks for uh, coming on to help break down a, uh, a pretty complex topic, but it sounds like one where we've got some uh, momentum in the right direction and uh, be interested to hear how, how things shake out. My pleasure, Jason. So, Thomas, what did you think of the interview with uh, Chris? Yeah, Jason, uh, very informative. <laughs> I'll tell you what it... Uh, I, I really had no idea, though, the sheer magnitude of this. I mean, really, to put things in perspective, <laughs> the, the you know the the amount of emissions associated with this are the same as all the light vehicles on the planet. And you know, we we spent a lot of time talking about you know the conversion to electric vehicles and you know, stopping the use of internal combustion vehicles. But really, this this problem's just just as big. Yeah, it's pretty wild to think about it in that context. You know, obviously we're rightfully focused on electrifying transportation, but you know, there are a lot fewer concrete plants out there than there are cars. And so coming up with a good solution seems like you could retrofit it, you know, much more quickly. And and as we're talking about, you know, the fact that we use so much of concrete, it's worth pointing out that, you know, carbon isn't the only impact, right? I mean, roughly 10% of industrial water use goes to, to making concrete. You know, it's actually, believe it or not, creating a, a global sand shortage, you know, you need, you know, special kind of sand to be able to make it. it has to be kind of the, the type that comes from riverbeds or beaches rather than than the desert. Apparently the sand on rivers and, and beaches is more angular and that works better with the concrete. But yeah, no kidding. There is a global sand shortage underway to the point where, you know, they're dredging up, you know, rivers and whatnot and causing all sorts of environmental damage just to get at the stuff. And then, you know, even just the aggregate, right? The gravel that goes into the the concrete. I mean, every time we need more of that, we have to go cut down a mountain. So I think in addition to the carbon, it's just worth pointing out that there are these other, you know, huge environmental impacts to, to concrete. Yeah. Cause when, when you look at a normal concrete mix, you, you typically have uh, about one part cement, two parts sand and three parts aggregate or gravel. Um, so really for every, you know, unit of cement powder that we're using, there's five other units of other minerals that are put into this which which leads obviously to the you know the question of well what do we do in terms of solutions and chris was great about laying out some of the promising technologies that help us reduce 
the carbon emission side of things, I, I think, and he spoke to this as well, but we, what we fundamentally need to do is use less concrete. You know, I mean, whether that's using nature instead of concrete, you know, getting rid of seawalls and, and growing mangroves instead, or, you know, taking out that levee and, and using wetlands to absorb floods, or, you know, as he pointed out, using concrete more efficiently. But we just, we got to start with using less of this stuff. And I, I think part of that comes back to how we design our cities. So if you, you look at the moment, we typically build a whole bunch of very low density, uh, single level, well, especially in Australia, single level sprawling suburbs that all have concrete foundations in them. And then we build a really high density central business district that has massive concrete structures in it and structures that do require concrete because they are so tall and you need the tensile strength and compressive strengths and so forth that modern concretes can can bring. But if we look at the European model where there's more sort of three to four story buildings spread throughout the city, that results in a significantly lower concrete requirement um, because it can allow you to have, sure, the foundations might still be concrete, but the structures themselves can be timber and hempcrete and other products that are suited to building up to that three to four story level. Well, and then not only does it house people in in fewer square footage, but then it also has those co-benefits of, you know, making it easier to justify public transportation and, you know, reducing car use, et cetera. So urbanization isn't going away, right? And if you believe the UN projections, they're saying another two and a half billion are going to be, you know, moving into cities by 2050. And along those same lines too, like when we build these structures, I think it's very important that we do focus on uh, building for the future. So something that's going to have a long operational life and a flexible operational life so that we're not having to decommission and rebuild these structures every 40 years or whatever it might be. So solid planning around current use and future use for these structures. Yeah, completely agree. And and then as Chris points out, you know, being able to, if we do have that structure that has to come down, being able to recycle that, you know, that concrete and, you know, feed the aggregate sand leftover cement back into the process again. So we're not having to go out and, and get net new materials. Yeah. And along that uh, line, talking about recycled materials, there, there is a concern in my mind about um, the dependence upon fly ash as a substitute for cement powder in um, green concretes. Uh, and the, the reasoning there is that um, it creates demand for a resource that we don't really want to be creating demand for. The sooner we can... Um, I guess, let these coal-fired power stations that are creating this waste fly ash go out of business, uh, the better. So, you know, we we don't really want to prolong their um, demise, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, also a great point. I mean, if all the coal plants were sort of decommissioned tomorrow and we had this huge pile of of fly ash, and and fly ash for folks who may not know is just what's left over after you you burn the coal, kind of like what's left over in your your barbecue, you know, after you burn your briquettes. But uh, yeah, we don't want to be creating demand streams that (laughs) encourage, you know, more fossil fuel use. So I guess, you know, all this leads to the question we always try to ask, which is what can we do? And this week we've got two suggestions. The first is, the first is if you're here in the U.S., email President Biden and tell him the U.S. needs to start requiring low carbon concrete in federal projects 
as well as recycled materials where possible. And we'll have talking points on our website to assist with that, as well as a link, as well as a direct link to be able to email him. And our, our second option this week is really about, you know, thinking through your own use when you get ready to do a project that requires concrete and looking for alternatives either to the concrete itself or finding concrete that has lower embodied carbon. And we'll have links on our website to some sources that can give you ideas on that sort of thing, whether you're building a driveway or house. I don't know, Thomas, you have any other thoughts there? Of course, Jason, as you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, hempcrete. Sure, not a direct replacement for concrete, but might mean that you, you're not using concrete blocks in the walls anymore. And instead, you've got a you know, natural and insulating product made of hempcrete instead. Yeah, there there really is no limit at this point to the the substitutes that are being worked on out there. And I'm, you know, I mean, maybe an engineering geek, but super excited to see where, you know, things land and what we're using to build our structures, you know, even 10 years from now. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Come back and join us again on April 11th when we'll be dropping our next episode. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Mm-hmm.